This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sets, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden. I'm here today with a, a crowded digital room. We've got Kareem Fawaz and Peter Gardet, who have been on the uh, podcast many times and our listeners are very familiar with, and Chris Fensky, uh, a newcomer who will bring a new uh, a new level of conversation. Chris's background is on fixed income um, and, and more from the uh, investor side of things and the energy side of things. Guys, how are you all? Good. Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Hill. Yeah. So... The background for, for today's conversation, you know, it's, it's January 13th. All of Twitter and all of CNBC and elsewhere is talking about the, the big investable themes for 2022. And energy is getting a lot of attention. And, and I think a lot of this is on rates. A lot of this is on, you know, growth. A lot of this is on inflation concerns. Um, energy seems to be the one on the clean tech side of thing, the one growth engine that's still getting positive attention. So we wanted to dive into both the clean tech side with Peter, the traditional oil side with Kareem, and start really the conversation around rates and what's happening in the uh, uh, rate environment. Chris, if you can help frame things, that would be great. Okay, thank you, Hill, and thank everyone today. So let's rewind back to the previous you know inflation environment over the past 20 years. So. Prior to COVID, you know, advances technology enabled super efficient supply chains, unprecedented price transparency. I mean, you know, you could look at the price of you know hundreds of different goods across the world, pick out the best price. You know, that in and of itself kept inflation relatively subdued. You know, you no longer had to drive to ten different stores to find the best price for an item. And in addition, there's no more ge- geographic constraints to be able to purchase things. You could purchase something from all over the world, be delivered in a short period of time. Logistics were strong. You know, super efficient. You know, fast forward to COVID. So, you know, experiencing, you know, significant supply chain disruptions, uh, inflationary pressures, you know, for instance, just yesterday, the U.S. Consumer Price Report showed a 7% annual increase for U.S. goods. That's the highest 12-month increase since 1982. That's significant. You know, today's producer price index increased 0.2% in December. That translates into almost 10% year-over-year increase, which is the second largest increase since 2010. So, Inflation is here, you know, how long it's here to stay to be determined. Uh, you know, the state of the supply chain disruption is a big part of it. Uh, even core PPI today, that's minus food and energy. That increased as much as 0.5% on the month. That's significant. You know, let's let's chat a bit about some of the key drivers of inflation we're experiencing now. So initially triggered by a surge in pent-up demand after the major lockdowns in 2020, people were sitting a lot of savings. They weren't spending a lot of money during lockdown. So they couldn't wait to start spending. You know, this spending was met with with supply chain disruptions, limited supply. Governments added on to the amount of savings by just increasing stimulus, significant government stimulus programs, fuel demands further, uh, and then these supply chain disruptions. These pockets of disruptions required people to pay up to receive the limited amount supply of goods sooner. Then labor shortages. When people were sick, they couldn't work. Factories were shut down. Transportation was slowing. Uh, That led to higher pay. You know, if you need you need people quick, you pay them more. 
uh, higher commodity prices, similar similar functions from a demand perspective. You know, companies had to pass the increased cost to consumers. Now, this has all been happening since it's early 2021, pretty 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 fast. And you know, most recently, these supply chain disruptions, the surge of inflation was happening during the holiday season, when people are buying a lot of things at, at a short period of time. Uh, you saw a lot of front loading on purchases. You know, you normally do your Christmas shopping, say in November. Maybe you did it in September this year. Maybe you did it in October. So that further, you know, creates more supply chain issues where demand came in sooner than expected in the past. You know, on a side note, we're not going to talk about this much, but shortage of homes on the market for sale, higher cost of construction material, that's led to higher home prices. And that's also triggered an increase in rents nationwide, which also fuels inflation. And that's really, I mean, it feels in some ways that that's the key or one of the key changes to, to set up 2022 is the inflation. A lot of this is similar to 21, but, but the inflation narrative in 21 was transitory. And it seems that that word has become transitory, I suppose. That yeah, that narrative switched course this past fall, where you know, and the reason why it was transitory because a lot of those initial surges in price increases, it was like airline tickets. You know, everybody mm-hmm. wanted to go on vacation. Used, used car prices. I mean, that's you know the biggest highlighted supply chain shortage where it's very difficult to buy a new car, so you had to buy used cars. People were bidding up used cars. Used car prices surged. So it was viewed initially by economists like, oh, this is temporary. You know, once more cars are produced. Once more people go on vacation, this will stop. But it didn't stop. You know, this this trickles down into what I mentioned before: higher wages. You know, people are getting paid more. You get paid more, you got to increase the prices of other products. So a lot of consumer staple prices. Pretty much every quarterly earnings call from consumer consumer staple companies last year, you know, mentioned some sort of price increase. It's typically the larger companies that actually could increase their prices without you know decreasing demand substantially. Obviously, smaller companies come under a lot more pressure in that perspective. You know, I'd say one major tailwind for the energy sector, you know, and that's been the oil and gas price remaining at the highest level in almost eight years. That's been a big positive. The energy sector, you know, from a debt perspective, uh, has been by far the best performing global debt sector since I'd say about April 2020, you know, right around the bottom of oil prices. I mean, a, a lot of reasons behind that. I'll talk about that a bit more later, but it's been a marquee sector. On the equity side, it was one of the best performing equity sectors mm-hmm. in the U.S. last year. You know, that's that's almost solely due to higher energy prices. And so that sets up well, I think, the, the traditional energy landscape and helps to explain the, the traditional energy and landscape. And, and, you know, I'd like to Kareem to, to come in on some of that. But before I want to come back to also the opposite side of this is that these higher rates that will help to temper inflation are less good news or, or even bad news to some of the growth stocks, um, you know, whether that be some of the startups in energy or some of the startups outside of energy. And, and so I guess, you know, Kareem, if you could help frame some of what we're seeing on the traditional energy landscape, given what Chris has just said. Sure. I mean, obviously, it's quite, it's been quite visible, kind of the scale of the recovery we've seen in oil prices over the past year. Really, what's happened in 2021 was, if you remember how we entered last year, we entered really the year coming into it with a lot of excess across the oil market, both in terms of inventories, in terms of slack from a capacity standpoint, OPEC had cut records amount of production in 2020 just to make sure that we didn't, uh, that uh, the market was relatively well supplied through the end of the year. So we came into last year with a lot of excess throughout the, the old market supply chain. And what happened over 2021 was we worked through a lot of those buffers as demand recovered relatively strongly through the second half of the year. So we drew down inventories back below historical averages. 
spare capacity started to kind of unwind over the second half of the year. And at the end of the day, you, you entered this year with a lot of those buffer no longer, uh, no longer there. And this narrative formed around the impact of lower investment in supply and, and the impact that can have in the medium term to kind of coalesce around this perception of scarcity. And this narrative of scarcity, I would say, has become not just the consensus, but the driving engine behind world prices, especially over the past few weeks, as we've seen prices kind of move back into the high $80 a barrel range. Uh, so it's interesting because you have, to some extent, real physical improvement in, in oil markets that we've seen over the past year, but you also have clear expectation-driven long-term views of traditional energy that are starting to become a key driver here. And that's kind of what the banks are talking about. That's kind of feeding this perception. And that's going to be the key challenge this year is to see the extent to which the market is going to live up or undermine to some extent that perception and that perception that we're not just out, you know, we're not just recovering from COVID, but we're entering a multi-year bull cycle or tightening cycle for, for oil and, and by extension other commodities because of these supply issues, because demand is recovering and is more resilient than expected, uh, despite the energy transition. And that's the key narrative is going to be tested. And I think one of the key places that probably we disagree to some extent with some of the banks out there at IHS as we think about 2022 is we do still think that this is a year that can make or break it. So it's not a foregone conclusion that you're entering this period of ever higher prices. 2022 is going to see really whether this spare capacity kind of unwinding is real, whether you do have, you do start to see real issues in terms of meeting market demand is going to show you whether the shale industry has really changed in a structural and meaningful mm -hmm. way. One of the big trends last year was this shale industry that was a major deflator for oil prices and energy stocks more generally through the past seven years had changed its strategy and changed how they respond to price signals and changed how volumes and growth can become a part of price formation. And to some extent, that was a positive component of 2021 in the sense that the U.S. industry did not re respond particularly strongly to significantly higher prices. What we're going to see in 2022 is now that a lot of companies have finished the balance sheet repair part of that recovery, how they're going to behave with prices comfortably above break-evens and generating a huge amount of cash flow, of free cash flow for a lot of these companies how they behave with the capital, how much goes back to shareholders versus goes back to growth is going to be a key determinant of whether that price formation in the next three to five years has changed materially to the higher end than what we've had over the past few years. We believe it has, but the, qu the question is, what are the limits of that restraint? So that's something that this year is going to have uh, to, to kind of validate. You also have a lot of other things. You have the negotiations with Iran. You have the fate of kind of that demand recovery, what the new normal for demand is. So the bottom line is we still think we're in that transition period. And a lot of volatility this year can kind of come into play. But for markets, the key trend is going to be verifying and kind of validating whether that long-term structural view of scarcity can hold. And the next 12 months are going to be basically where most of that battle is, is going to be fought, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, I think the others, so, so that shale sector, which was really kind of a growth sector for, for so long, has e either converted or potentially converted into that more of a value play. 
that seems to be getting a lot of the enthusiasm from the financial folks on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, the, the other side of this, and Chris, if you could come back in and talk about this, is clean tech and its role within the, the growth trade, for, for lack of a better word. Can you talk about that for a second? And Peter, Peter, can we get some comments from you on that as well? So, I mean, given this you know, current perception and expectation of inflation, I mean, rising rates are inevitable. You know, a combination of the bond market reacting to rising, rising inflation, central banks talking about acting pretty quickly. You know, I mean, rates have been suppressed for quite a while by central bank purchases. And there's also mm -hmm. some degree of like a flight to safety recently, you know, given the impact of Omicron's potential on G global GDP. You know, companies that produce hard assets and commodities typically outperform during times of higher inflation, you know, like oil companies. A higher dividend yield with energy company equity helps to counteract a lot of inflationary pressures. High yield bond market typically outperforms the investment grade sector in past rising rate environments. Uh, this should actually give energy companies better access to public debt markets, given that energy is the single largest sector in the U.S. high yield market. Yeah, but, but rising rates, you mentioned it before, Hill, but they're not necessarily negative for the broader technology sector. But higher rate assumptions do drive valuations lower for the more speculative companies that are not producing much revenue, if any revenue, or profits, which does include, to your point, some of the clean tech companies. Regardless of the direction of rates, investors will continue to pay up for clean tech companies with strong intellectual properties, sound businesses. You know, I, I defer to Peter. He's the expert in that space. And it's probably the best place to highlight the types of clean tech that has the highest chance of success. Pass it on to you, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, so... Long story short, the kind of emerging gap between capital that's available to the clean tech sector have been set aside for it, and the rate of capacity additions in renewable energy or batteries and so on, there's a gap there. You know, clean tech had a very big sort of five years up until about the middle of 2021. And 2021, you know, is going to go in as a record year for installations and additions and also for capital raises. But what you're looking at is this weird now two to three year period where that capital has to work its way into actual projects, get actually deployed against markets. Uh, there are a lot of open questions about the next phase of clean tech. Where does storage belong? Uh, can renewable uh, utility-scale renewable returns come up enough to attract more money in the, the following years. So, you know, the way we looked at it, we pulled together debt raised in the bond market, private equity, dry powder that's been set aside for energy transition plays, uh, IPO uh, capital cash that was raised in uh, past year, and then government funding that is going to be available. And you come up with uh, like three quarters of a trillion dollars of just money that's been kind of put aside, if you like, mm -hmm. for energy transition uh, investments. Now, the question is, where does that all go? Everything we see when we look at uh, supply chains and inventories and so on is that 2022, the year we're in, we're beginning, is actually going to see a dip in terms of physical steel in the ground. So you have this weird kind of tale of two markets with all of this cash arriving at the same time that where you can put that cash to work is actually kind of diminished. I think that will create some odd energy transition moments where we get really high returns and excellent looking 
results from legacy fossil fuel plays and that short-term investors are going to be rewarded really well for investing over that two to three year period. By the middle of the decade, that's probably not going to be the case in the same way anymore. You kind of finally see all that cash, that wall of money, begin to make its way into the real world, begin to ricochet through energy markets. And uh, I think that brings us to the question of what kind of investor are you in 2022? If you are a uh, short-term quarterly results kind of hedge fund investor who plays in the public equity markets, you're going to need to be very careful about your clean tech plays. It's going to be a name-by-name name kind of game. In For longer-term investors, for private equity firms that have you know five- and ten-year lockups, for sovereign wealth funds, for pension funds that are looking 20 years out, they've already made this move, and they are already really mm -hmm. trying to just gauge which technology works for them, you know, where they think the returns are going to sit. And just to touch quickly on, on Christopher's, uh, Chris's question, classic renewables, wind and solar, having a lot of trouble making money right now. There are a number of intrinsic reasons for that, but we don't see a lot of change in the imminent future. The general logic is towards distribution. So you get distributed renewables matched with energy storage, and that's batteries. That's, you know, going to be a hot play. Batteries, overall, partially into energy storage and partially into electric vehicles, which are taking off a lot faster than we expected. And then hydrogen and CCUS. Uh, you know, CCUS, I think, is still, we're talking about late 2020s before we really get commercial, com you know, projects that can stand up commercially on their own, just given where the technology is and the scale at which you need to deploy. But hydrogen's moving really fast. I think that by the second half of this decade, we'll see realistic, large-scale um, hydrogen that's uh, associated with both renewable and natural gas plays. And looking at, I mean, we've been talking about energy, whether that be clean tech or uh, traditional in big buckets. And it seems like we're in an environment where, where existing cash flows will favor companies or, or even sectors. I, I guess first on the tr traditional energy side, Kareem, it, it seems like wh whether shale sector or global oil, they're all in a pretty good position uh, from cash flow perspective, given the lack of investment leading up to what are we now 80 85 dollars a barrel yeah i mean we're around we're in the mid 80 or kind of mid 80s for brand a bit lower than that for wti so that's a good point so if you think about oil prices and kind of traditional energy companies through much of the past three four years i mean it's really been a story of kind of the commodity prices feeding through and kind of rising tide uh, kind of lifts all boats in 2021 what's interesting about 2022 and this goes back to something kind of peter was talking about is Especially traditional energy companies, and if you think about whether it's the majors, whether it's U.S. kind of ENPs on the shale side, there's going to be a lot more differentiation between what companies are doing with the money. You can't really isolate the transition decisions from the traditional energy sector. So the majors obviously is going to be a question of how capital is getting deployed across portfolios, who doubles down on upstream investment, who got kind of uses that windfall that's coming from higher oil prices to get bigger and renewables get bigger and it's going to vary on a regional basis who goes into kind of frontier plays versus who hunkers down in the core low above ground risk places who focuses on low carbon development within traditional energy versus shale for example 
And within the shale sector is going to be a lot more interesting in that these companies had to repair a lot of damage done to their balance sheets through the past year. But what's what's going to be interesting now that for the most part, a lot of them have, or the majority of them have worked off that kind of overhang from the 2020 meltdown. Now the decision is going to be, do you favor dividends versus buybacks? Do you favor kind of, do you consolidate further? Do you grow? How do you, how do these companies make those decisions going forward? And the reality is because there's not a single governing kind of here, best, best case kind of best solution, each company is going to behave differently. You're going to see clusters of companies within the space do different things and the investor is going to reward or or punish others depending on how that medium term perception kind of feeds through. And I think that's going to be one of the most interesting takeaways of this year is to see where capital goes and what capital is turned off by, kind of so to speak. Does capital kind of punish growth in, in US ENPs as much as we think on the surface mm-hmm. they would? Or does it allow a bit more growth because the perception is you need to monetize on these assets while you still can? You do have some running room in the next couple of years. So that's going to be an interesting test here this year. So I think that's an important kind of takeaway. I think I, from a macro standpoint, I agree with kind of what Peter was saying. On the short-term side, there's a clear move where I think it's fair to say that the return environment should be improving quite visibly from the environment that we've kind of seen over the past seven years. You are entering a, fa- a period of higher commodity prices. You have relative capital scarcity, even if probably it's overplayed in general versus the reality of it. There's clear kind of shift of capital away from the sector, both external capital and within the sector itself as companies gear more of their returns to kind of be deployed in, in other segments of their portfolios, non traditional energy oriented. So I think from an overall returns standpoint, it's getting better. The interesting test is going to be within that spectrum, how does capital kind of migrate and where to uh, is going to be kind of, and I think boiled down ultimately to the question that Peter was asking, which is it depends on the type of investor, the the Mm -hmm. investment horizon and what you're trying to achieve. On a short-term basis, companies that have, you know, variable dividends and, aggressive share buyback program might be more attractive. If you want to think about the medium term, you know, majors become more attractive because they're bridging. So you don't have that medium term droop that some of the pure play oil producers might have in that long term demand risk that they're facing. And from a capital scarcity perspective, Chris, I mean, a lot of what we're seeing from a rate perspective is a lot of people saw coming, right? Did you see that in the behavior of companies issuing debt in preparation for what could be a a, a more challenged environment in 22? I mean, this past couple of years have been, you know, at or near record levels from data streams perspective, you know, definitely investment grade, high yield is some of the best years ever, obviously taking advantage of lower rates, uh, issuance has been geared more towards the long run, like longer duration debt. Obviously, you want to lock in rates for a longer period of time. Uh, and Peter and I speak about this all the time, but we're seeing increased demand in ESG, sustainability-linked debt. Uh, it's a growing market, rapidly growing. Uh, it's not really translating to lower borrowing costs yet for, for ESG issuers. You know, there there is maybe some new issue concession, a slight concession based on data. But, you know, just looking through research of one of the major investment banks, 
know, they looked at their 2021 ESG new issues versus just general new issues there. They're seeing the ESG issues about 3.4 times oversubscribed versus about 2.9 times oversubscribed for regular bonds. Uh, that's actually likely to increase. So the demand is there, but the debt markets right now, there's such an insatiable demand to buy debt. And there's still a somewhat limited supply despite all the issuance that that the actual benefit and demand has sort of been hidden and you're not seeing that that tightness the tighterness and spread for those ESG issues but you know as soon as you see a downtick investor demand for the broader debt market you're you're likely to see a much better borrowing cost for these these greeniums or these ESG issues uh, but you're not going to see that until that supply demand you know balance changes to some extent and is that across all sectors or is traditional energy having a is the debt availability not quite as as big there as it is for the clean tech side? Oh, traditional debt is it's at its best it's probably ever been quite possibly. You know, definitely the best in over 10 years uh, from a new issuance perspective, very well received by the market. I mean, it all goes back to what Kareem's saying and oil prices. You know, mm-hmm. you're producing a significant amount of excess cash flow that you could use to service debt. You, your refinancing becomes a lot easier. I mean, that's it's all about that. Once oil prices start dipping below $50, $45 a barrel, obviously, depending on the producer and depending on their cost of production, you start really putting a lot of pressure on that market. You know, But where they are, 85, 80, even 75, 60 is, is not severe, severely low for, for the debt side. I mean, keep in mind, too, debt investors don't really care as much about growth. They just want to be paid back their principal. Right. Equity investors care about growth. So yeah, long-term projections on, on oil prices going much higher, you know, suits an equity investor that's going to drive their model, that's going to drive their valuations. But debt perspective, you just want to get paid back you know, on time. And, it's, and so a, access, it's a different investor. Access to capital isn't really inhibiting either of these sectors. No, and and in the public markets. Mm-hmm. The actually the, think bank lending has been pared down. Some of the reserve-based lending has been pared down from the banks. And a lot of that's you know, basically push from their own investors, from banks, investors, you know, regulators to some extent too, where, you know, more and more banks are leaving the sector of direct lending to these producers. But public markets are welcome and open arms because it's a very profitable investment. It has been a very profitable investment so far over the past couple, past year and a half or so. And and so, Peter, if we're looking, you know, more specifically at the the clean tech sector, you know, Kareem mentioned the cliche that that, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. There's also the other cliche that, you know, once the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And clean tech has been filled with some of these uh, more speculative, you know, SPAC ideas, for lack of a better word, without getting into any, you know, names of certain companies or anything. Are there certain sectors that that we should see as being more mature and uh, not swimming naked? Yeah, I mean, so you have to be pretty brave right now to be any kind of electric vehicle investor. I think that uh, there's just no, you know, you can choose any name that's out there associated with EVs and uh, you probably see some froth in that. I think uh, battery plays that are closely linked to EV plays also face that same kind of discrepancy, although the shortfall, the sheer uh, demand for batteries overall is probably going to be large enough to to overcompensate for that on a name-by-name basis. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about covering clean tech, uh, which is such a broad concept, is that a lot of the players in it aren't necessarily, you know, who you think they are, or mm-hmm. the the project financing isn't what you think it is. You know, traditional energy, which is the background I come from, you know, you have utilities, say, that just do everything and then distribute out 
and someone pays for the power and that's the business model. Chris was talking earlier about the performance of ESG debt and it, you know, just one of the very well-performing green bonds that was issued this year that we tracked went to Pfizer. And Pfizer has announced that they're going to spend that billion dollars they raised putting their uh, production facilities on distributed energy. And they've signed contracts with wind and solar manufacturers to fill, fit those out and with an energy uh, supply company to essentially manage it on their behalf. That's a totally different kind of energy investment than saying like you know AES or AEP or Enel or whomever in the legacy energy sector is going to build a bunch of generation and then ship it to markets. And that's the kind of thing almost that you have to be paying attention to that level of detail in order to, to choose who uh, might be a winner here, rather than saying like, you know, every year Vestas as a windmill producer is shipping X number of turbines to the power sector, ergo they are a good business. Well, you know, uh, in 2030, which is how long we have to look out for this uh, these supply chain and the, uh, and demand issues, is um, they, their market could be really different. It could be not power producers. And so I think there's just a lot of, you really have to dig into the details and go name by name, issue by issue to really understand what you're looking at and to get a, a sense of where you can you know, gain alpha. And from the energy transition sense, that what's happening in the, the larger macro environment and cost of debt and whatever else, doesn't sound like there's concern that this is going to slow down, that the pace can continue and clean tech can continue to grow into 22 and beyond. I mean, so clean tech, everybody, you got to be long technology to be long the future, I think, is the short version of what you're asking. I think in the short term, we definitely see some headwinds emerging around debt. I think you're already seeing some commercial papers start to attract higher rates, which discourages lending um, or discourages uh, issuance on the part of the corporation. What we did see is we looked at ESG issuance, uh, more specifically green and sustainability tagged bonds that were linked to actual projects, is that it caps out uh, like 30, 40 billion a month and has real trouble breaking through that ceiling right now. And I think that's partially just due to the it's really hard to find assets to deploy that money against at the moment. Like you borrow uh, a few billion dollars and, and what do you buy at a reasonable rate? So it will surprise me if we have the same epic year in 2022 when it comes to debt issuance, bond debt issuance for green, clean tech supportive debt. That doesn't mean that over time, this isn't going to become possibly you know one of the main areas for debt investors or equity investors to be playing in. So when we're thinking, I mean, I, I guess a couple questions in this, but it seems like both traditional energy and clean tech energy or net zero energy or whatever anybody wants to call it can have a pretty good year uh, this year, given the setup of where we are today. So, so you know, it sounds like we're supportive of that thesis coming out of uh, you know a lot of these talking heads and banks and elsewhere. The, the other side of this, I, I think, is um, ESG, and there was an article that I think we all saw in one of the major financial papers about how traditional energy equities outperformed ESG 
ETFs last year, and the outperformance was like 37% versus 30%. So, so the ESG at 30% still had a pretty doggone good year. But in that ESG fund, and it was one of the largest ESG funds, if not the largest uh, out there, both Chevron and Exxon are in the holdings. Are, are we going to start seeing more of that where energy becomes a single conversation rather than a separate conversation? Oh, hell, I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> uh, I mean, ESG qualifications have just been a mess for a long time. And people really want their money to do good. And they really want to align with the future and buy into net zero uh, trajectories. And I think that's all to the good. I have found it interesting that professional investors who often are not buying in these funds, but are using ESG screens for larger scale capital deployment, think about this in a somewhat different way. They think about, does a company have a carbon management strategy and then a plan to meet it? And that's a representative of strong management and a strong kind of uh, underlying company approach to the future, which makes them a better investment. I think a lot of the ESG funds that are out there are about to run into the sawmill of regulation. I mean, it's just uh, the European Union is on the verge of, you know, uh, issuing its green investment rules. The SEC has uh, climate risk reporting rules coming out. And you will be able to buy net zero aligned portfolios that may very well have Exxon and Chevron in them, but mm -hmm. that will actually be able to correlate their emissions goals, governance goals, social goals against what's going on in the balance sheet, which is not someplace we we are right now. All right. Well, so, you know, maybe just to wrap it up, I get some comments from each of you guys on this that, you know, the setup's pretty good. And Kareem, I'm going to start with you because you and I were talking, I guess, a week or so ago that when the setup is too good is when you get nervous. Uh, so, so what what are the risks yeah. in, in each of your eyes on what you're seeing and, and what seems to be a pretty favorable environment for energy, regardless of the sector, going into the rest of this year? I mean, for me, on the traditional side, I would say, I mean, especially from what we've, we've seen so far in January, and we're barely a couple of weeks in, and we're already kind of trending towards the upper end of that range we've been trading in over the past six months. I mean, the key worry I have is just kind of overheating here in the short term. Because if I'm thinking about investing in traditional energy, I would argue probably a narrower amplitude range around where we are today, if we can hold prices in the current 75 to 85 range, is probably that the sweet spot from, a, from both a commodity and equity standpoint versus as you start moving beyond that range, you start to trigger a lot of the sources of instability, both on supply and demand, that ultimately... I think, sows the seeds of its own demise, at least in our view. So you can potentially overshoot. I think the momentum is there to overshoot if things break the right way. Geopolitical risk is high. You, a disruption here or there. And suddenly, you know, you're zooming past $90, $95 a barrel. I think there is a lot of underlying instability once you pass these levels, both for markets and more generally for the economy, from an economic standpoint. So I think that's probably one of the bigger risks, I would say, probably that you overshoot and then have to have a sharper correction. It could be the second half of this year, it could be in 20, early 2023. But at some point, if you do start to move significantly above the current price range, we do still believe that the impacts it would have on, 
on fundamentals, on, on kind of jump-starting supply, pressuring demand would be such that it would force a kind of probably bruising correction for the, the market and by extension for uh, companies and equities. And Peter, what were your thoughts on some risks around the, the clean tech? Yeah, I mean, the biggest uh, risk uh, for investors thinking about 2022, I think, is is right where Kareem finished. If the market, you know, falls 20% on an index level, the S&P 500, you know, finally corrects after all of these years of threatening to, you know, everything struggles in a downturn like that. And I just... So at that point, it becomes about relative performance. And it seems inevitable all the time that a uh, correction is coming, and yet somehow we keep on delaying it year by year. So I've given up predicting corrections, but I would note that the Fed is definitely taking a very different approach uh, in January than they were uh, for the last couple of years. And I think that that's uh, probably pretty crucial. When it comes to clean tech in particular, I think there are three things uh, that form a threat. One is around returns for renewable energy in classic energy markets. So mm -hmm. if you are building a wind or solar plant, you're probably getting a 3 to 5% return right now. That's not very competitive. You need to bring that up to 8 to 11 for it to look uh, like something that uh, new money can go after. The second is around government funding. You know, government give, governments give and governments take away, and often what they give is in the wrong place and fitted to the wrong mm -hmm. uh, markets. So, uh, a lot of uh, legacy clean tech plays uh, from the last couple decades were linked to things like tax equity. A lot of the new stuff really doesn't need it, and in some ways, uh, some of the funding I think could warp the market a little bit, make it too long supply and too short uh, demand pulls. And the final piece for me, I think in this will be a big 2022 issue, is around narrative. You know, we've seen, it's become an accepted fact uh, in people's minds that renewable energy is the main culprit of high energy prices in Europe mm -hmm. and other regions, and thus of blackouts and service problems. You know. Renewable energy is intermittent, and certainly uh, turning off your nuclear plants in the middle of a energy crisis to put yourself uh, entirely on uh, North Sea wind is a questionable decision on the part of company, countries like Germany. However, the reason energy prices are so high is because of natural gas prices. I mean, that's fundamentally right. what's happening here. And I notice that it's becoming more and more, even among informed people, like, oh, Energy prices are a big problem because of climate change uh, responses by government. And that's simply not necessarily the case yet. Could it be? Certainly. Uh, it's something that I think will be part of the market discussion in 22. And volatility is another favorite buzzword from all sorts of prognosticators this year. Chris, any risks on your end, whether specific to the energy sector or around rates themselves? My biggest risk, and not saying in any way, shape, or form this would happen, but you know, a much worse than expected Im impact of Omicron in China. You know, that has so many implications: supply chain disruption, increasing inflation, increasing inflation while simultaneously a flight to quality or risk off, keeping rates low. So you're basically backing in the world, backing central banks into a corner where they can't raise rates because of macro concerns of a slowdown while inflation's taken off. 
you know, not saying that's going to happen, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's to be determined how Omicron is going to impact the region, you know, as it's starting to begin to gradually, you know, move across the globe at this point. All right. Well, th those are some, I suppose, cautious words to, to end a what was otherwise fairly optimistic conversation. Uh, so so we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that with some uh, caveat of tour, uh, I suppose, for any uh, enthusiastic individuals watching some of these financial guest makers or forecasters. Kareem, Peter, Chris, thank you all. Uh, Chris, I hope you enjoyed yourself and we'll come back. Kareem and Peter, uh, I hope the same. Of course. Thanks, Hill. Thank you very much, Hill. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.